I would be pushing sports. And then life throws us a curveball. Yeah, kind of feels like a punch in the side of the face. <laughs> well, I was going to say a punch to the nose. So, as comfortable as you are. This is Mike Bassett, and welcome to Legal Grounds Conversations on Life, Leadership, and Law. Now, unless you've lived under a rock your entire life, there's a good chance you know the two most common phrases associated with the Lone Star State. The first, don't mess with Texas, actually has nothing to do with that sometimes over-the-top Southern swagger. So while it may grace the mud flaps and bumpers of many a proud Texan, the initial cause the phrase was used to promote wasn't one of rugged individualism, but of communal responsibility. You see, Don't Mess with Texas was a campaign to get drivers to stop littering. Now, as someone who has driven all across this state, I can tell you that there are a lot of miles, and especially in the 1980s when speed limits were lower, a lot of time between gas station trash cans. The good news is the Don't Mess with Texas campaign kicked off in 1985 was wildly successful. And in the four years stretching from 1987 to 1990, it was estimated that Texans had kicked the bad habit to the tune of a near 75% reduction in roadside litter. It's even more impressive once you realize that Texas has the highest road miles by state, more than 680,000 miles, which is nearly double that of runner-up California, who came in at a measly 390 miles of drivable terrain. And that fact brings me to the second phrase, everything is bigger in Texas. While this idea can easily bring to mind bravado or barbecue, there is a simple fact that my home state is massive. Our research team looked it up, and if Texas was a country, it would be number 39 out of the world's 195 countries in sheer land size area. And all of that distance, plus all of those paved roads, equals a motorcyclist paradise. Now, I don't know this from personal experience, but some of my closest friends and family members were, or currently are, members of the two-wheel transportation subculture. My oldest brother, Sterling, owned and regularly rode a Harley-Davidson for most of his post-military life. It was such a staple that for one year at Christmas, at the top of their list, my two sons begged him for Harley leather jackets just like he had and he came through in classic fashion. And yes, they even had the early 90s fringe on the sleeves. Liz and I also have some dearly close friends around our age who still take their BMW touring bike from Dallas to the shores of Florida at least once a year. For them, traveling is part of their vacation, not just a means of getting to their destination. But, but, and you know there's always something coming, as a lawyer who deals in mostly transportation litigation, anytime you are on two wheels, you are at a severe disadvantage when it comes to sharing the road. That being said, all of life entails accepting a certain level of risk, something my guest today knows about firsthand. And while a cycling accident in 2014 is something she's still recovering from, Vanessa Ruck not only got back on the road, but she also upgraded from being the engine to learning how to tune them. 
Known across the UK as a powerful, engaging activist and speaker, Vanessa has created a brand around her love for motorcycling that couldn't be more simple. She is the girl on a bike. But while the brand is simple, her mission is anything but. Using the experiences and lessons learned throughout her recovery, Vanessa has become a brand ambassador for multiple companies, and her motivational speaking is sought across companies and classrooms across the UK and on podcasts worldwide. And I couldn't be more excited to have her here in the studio with us today. Vanessa Ruck, welcome to Legal Grounds. Hello, thanks so much for having me. So you're a real trooper because right now it's past midnight where you live and you were kind enough to be on this podcast. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to be invited. So before you were a girl on a bike and before we even get to the story of your accident, would you mind giving listeners an idea of what it was like before that life-changing moment also a decade ago? What was your life like? The easiest way to describe myself would be an adrenaline junkie. I lived for extreme sports, pushing myself physically and mentally in those sports. I was very career-driven. I was an account director in marketing and sort of really heavily focused on that, but I had a very good work-life balance. And the second I was out of the office, I was looking for the wind to go kite surfing, which was my main love. I'd wakeboard after work. I cycled 16 miles a day on my commutes. I would gym three days, four days, in my lunch breaks, um, and if there was no wind, it would be rock climbing, horse riding, scuba diving, holidays with snowboarding and snow kiting, and you kind of get the idea. It was a lot of sports. I was very, very fit. I could do 13 pull-ups, three sets, jump on a bicycle and do 100 miles just for fun, uh, and certainly if I could go back, I would take a few extra moments to have a bit more appreciation for how incredible my body was back then because not only could it do anything I threw at it, it didn't hurt. <laughs> so, yeah. So more importantly, what did the Vanessa back then picture what the Vanessa would be like in 2022? Wow, good question. I mean, I think I'd probably have been aspiring to be pretty high managerial roles in in the marketing world that I was, was working in, very, very career focused. I would probably almost certainly say I'd have started a family by now uh, and I would be pushing sports. And then life throws us a curveball. Yeah, kind of feels like a punch in the side of the face. <laughs> well, I was going to say a punch to the nose. So as comfortable <laughs> as you are sharing, because I've yeah. listened to your interviews and listen to your podcast, as comfortable as you are sharing, tell us what happens in 2014 that ultimately ends up setting you on a different path. Yeah, so it was a very normal Tuesday. I'd been in the office all day and, you know, the clocks had just changed. So we had a bit more light in the evening and decided to go to the wakeboarding lake with my husband and some friends after work. So I got on my bicycle because I was not an active motorcycle rider at the time, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, I was a cyclist. Got on my bicycle and started pedaling away head down to the wakeboarding lake. Got about a mile from the office and a car coming the other way. Just decided not to stop at their red light and they cut straight across in front of me and like that, in a single moment, life as I knew it changed. Now, I was not a bleeding mess. 
I wasn't scraped up by paramedics. Um, I went to hospital in an ambulance. I was pretty shaken up. I had just been hit by a car. But I was actually discharged later that evening with bruising. Now, not, you were not kept overnight? No. No, I went home later that night having um, had an x-ray and been poked around a little bit. But I... Um, if you fast forward seven years, it's been eight and a half years now from the accident, but the bulk of my recovery was seven years. I, in that time, had seven surgeries, including a reconstructed right shoulder and right hip. So when you think about the implications of what actually happened to my body in that impact and the fact that I was initially diagnosed with bruising, it kind of gives you a bit of an idea of how much of a battle and a struggle it has been trying to get myself back to ultimately always wanting to or aspiring to get back to a point where I'm pain free I've unfortunately had to readjust my expectations because for my home my body pain free isn't a realistic outcome now but instead shifting my expectations you know what I get to a point where I can manage it I can cope with it I can adapt I can do things differently but I can at least just get up and try and make the most of every day uh, and just feel like I'm sort of making the most of life and yeah it's been a, a full roller coaster of seven year recovery really I mean I still live and manage the pain now eight and a half years on and uh, it really worked out one surgery a year for seven years where I, I often try and describe my recovery as a roller coaster and not like a really fun one where you're like woo this is great one where you're, you're looking at the ups and downs of the roller coaster so you've got the deep downs where I you know I was bed bound I was um, stuck staring at the same really annoying bit of paint on my bedroom ceiling I was in a lot of pain and then I start to get a bit better with my my rehab my my body would start healing and I'd start to be a little bit more active and so I'd be coming up the side of the roller coaster and then I'd get to sort of the high point of the roller coaster maybe I'm a little bit more active a bit more able possibly even able to get on a motorcycle bearing in mind over those seven years there were months and months years where I was not able to ride a motorcycle and then each time I sort of kind of just hit this ceiling where I just realized that I really hurt and that I was 28 years old or I was 29 years old or I was 31 years old and I just shouldn't be in this much pain. I shouldn't be this dependent on painkillers. Like I know my body listened to me. Sometimes it meant I had to go and get second, third, fourth opinions to be listened to. And sure enough, they'd find something that was missed or something had gone wrong human body is incredibly complicated and yeah I'd be bam back down the bottom of the roller coaster having having more surgery so physically it was a as a huge journey but I'm quite honest and open in talking about the fact that while I've got two reconstructed body parts the mental recovery has actually been harder than the physical I was diagnosed with multiple mental health disorders and that was a huge huge journey yeah, I want to get into that because I, I noticed that in listening to some of your interviews. So just to, just to sort of be clear, we've got a seven-year or seven-and-a-half-year ordeal where it's just not that you're under a doctor's care for seven or seven-and-a-half years, which would be bad enough. But essentially, every 12 months, you are having another surgery that then lays you out. Is that what's happening? Pretty much. Yeah, um, I mean... 
a couple of the surgeries were a little bit smaller maybe and they didn't wipe me out for quite as long but there were some there were some big ones in there and yeah pretty much you you kind of go into it saying you know I hurt and I'm not okay and then they look at you and they do the scans and then they go oh yeah I can see why you hurt you need to have surgery we need to do this and fix this and then he, somehow your brain psychologically goes wait 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 hang on maybe maybe I'm making it up maybe I'm not that bad maybe maybe I can cope with this pain and I can live with it and you start like doubting yourself and questioning it and just in the fear of having to take another 15 steps back to try and progress but you it's amazing how much you then question yourself and then going back into the surgery you know you think oh I've had hip surgery before I know what I'm doing it'll be fine I'll just do what I did before and I'll be over it even quicker because I know what I'm doing and actually your expectations are then completely off because it doesn't get easier if anything it's harder because they're cutting open the same thing it's scar tissue being cut open which means it takes longer to heal it's everything just gets more and more complicated and harder and so you're almost setting yourself for a worse situation because your expectations are like I've done this I know what I'm doing and you know obviously there's a lot of things that I did learn through having surgeries and there were things that I could do more effectively or better supplements or more effective physio processes all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day you're still being cut open <laughs> and and did you sometimes feel that you were having to be the your own advocate and your own cheerleader to get medical care and that you're like no one was listening to you did you ever feel that definitely i remember the first hip specialist i went to he actually laughed me out of his office that there was nothing nothing wrong with me and i was just making it all up um the honest truth is that if he hadn't shortly after retired i would have found a way to try and make sure he didn't see another patient because of how he treated me because i obviously then went on and found somebody else that would look, actually sort of take me serious and do the right scans and it was like whoa yeah no wonder you're in pain <laughs> um yeah well you know one of the the things in in learning about your story is you have been vulnerable enough to admit that this wasn't a eureka moment where you have this accident and then one day you decide you know what I'm going to turn this into a positive. You know, from what I read, it looked like for the first couple of years, at least you, you're in some pretty dark places. Yeah. And you've shared those with people. What has been the reaction when you do that, Vanessa? I think a, a lot of people probably maybe have expectations that I get a lot of I don't know, I'd, I'd feel vulnerable and be abused or get negativity or comments. But I think maybe because I've always just been like, this is the cards, this is everything. I'm not pretending to be anything. I'm not, I'm not making anything up. This is just what I'm going through, what I've gone through, how I'm feeling. And just being really sort of real and open about my situation. It's been an incredible reaction of, a lot of the time, like, wow, it's not just me. I, everybody in the world goes through struggles and battles and challenges. And when you think about the fact that my world is very much on social media now, obviously it's, it's grown over the years, but it's now at sort of 300,000 followers. And in the social media world, 
it can be really quite toxic and negative. It can be very shiny, perfect, people sharing the 5% of their life, which is just the best, the creme de la creme that they want the world to think is their life. And you look at it and you go, wow, my life really sucks. I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I've lost my job, I've had an argument, I'm struggling with diet, whatever it is, everybody has their challenges and battles. And I think there's an element of me just being so cards on the table with what I've gone through. It's been all kind of refreshingly received and I get a lot of energy from the energy other people get from my energy, which gives them energy and then I get energy and it's it's actually been an incredible process for my own healing because in this weird way, if every time I share my story, like for example, joining you at midnight now, if just one person hears this right. and gets a little bit of energy or just learns something that I've learned through my journey that could help them with their battles, for me, it makes me feel like everything I've gone through is, was worthwhile. What was the turning point or when did you start to think, you know what? maybe I do need to take this journey that I'm obviously on, that is obviously going to continue and share it with people. Because, you know, opening yourself up just to a friend is enough. But then, like you said, to put it out in, you know, at the pretty mean market square of social media, that takes some serious guts. That's one of those things where life is a journey. And it's not like I just woke up one day and went, right, let's right. let it all out. I I started my social media account when I was bed bound after my third surgery, which was my first hip surgery. And I'll be honest, I wasn't in a great headspace. I wasn't doing very well. I was in a lot of pain. I was feeling pretty sorry for myself. Probably still had a bit of anger at the driver, the whole situation. There was just a bit of self-pity, all of that kind of stuff. And I sort of just felt like I needed something to put my energy into. So I started this this um, Instagram account and I started posting photos of me from before the accident. Uh, I'd been diagnosed with change disorder so all of this kind of fits and makes sense as as you kind of picture it. I mean I didn't see myself as me. Vanessa was this fit capable person from before the accident and I couldn't relate to the broken pathetic mess so I was posting pictures of me from before the accident, kite surfing and snowboarding, look how cool I used to be and I then ran out of pictures. And I, I couldn't make any more. I was pathetic and pain and unable to do anything cool, what I perceived as cool. And so I just kind of thought, well, maybe I should just share what I'm doing. And it kind of, I mean, it's it would have started more a little bit more gradually. I probably didn't go straight in with like the deepest of darkest of feelings, but I think... I just started to share what I was going through and uh, and the more I did it, the more I realized that other people got energy from it and that helped my energy and it's just kind of been a journey. And and yeah, in, most recent, in more recent years, it's not necessarily the stuff that of me going through my recovery of the accident, it's me putting myself in almost sadistic situations in off-road extreme rally raid motorcycle races and surviving the desert but being completely honest about what it takes to be in those environments because so often you watch like athletes on the television or on social media and it just looks all shiny and amazing but actually the back stage of so much of life um yeah life isn't easy 
you know, someone told me, and you've probably seen it, that, you know, life, life is like a, ta a tapestry. On one side, you look and it's beautiful. And on the back side, you look at all the knots and all of the things. That's a beautiful picture of it. Yeah, well, it ain't mine like everything else. It's taken from somebody else, but feel free to use it. So here's a question I got for you. Obviously, you speak to a lot of people. <clears throat> what are a couple of lessons that you continue to learn through your journey? And I love that term because a journey uh, sort of doesn't mean a straight line. It means lots of detours. What are a couple of lessons that leaders can learn from your journey? I think the biggest one that I like to share is the power of our minds. So something that I learned a lot about and had to use a lot through my journey and I use on a daily basis now coping with the pain is, is mindfulness. And there's lots of different areas for mindfulness, but the bit that's really helped me is realizing that I'm in control of my thoughts. And previously, I'll be honest, I would have probably thought that my thoughts were a result of my environment or what was happening or what someone was saying to me or what was going on. Whereas actually, we have so much more control over what we let go through our mind. And by starting to be more conscious of those thoughts, we can then take more control of our subconscious thoughts. And the key is that our emotions are directly linked to our thoughts. So by being aware of our thoughts, we can protect ourselves from so much upset and emotion. I mean, one of the easiest examples for me to sort of to say on this is with my with my pain. And I try I've learned to recognize my initial trigger thoughts. And I think a lot of people in life will have a topic, a subject, an area that's sensitive that can cause, a, you know, a self downward spiral of upset, pity, anger, hate self-hate all of those kind of things and for me when i get this first thought of my hip really hurts right now mm. that first thought is my trigger and i know that if i let it stay in my mind i'll end up focusing on it reflecting on how rubbish my body is and it's not fair and why did it have to happen and why can't i have a different body you know other people don't have pain. Why do I have to live with pain? Why can't they fix me? What's wrong with that? I wish I had a different body and rule of the downward spiral. And then I, I start to get upset and my husband will be upset because I'm upset. And at the end of all of this, I'm in the exact same body with the exact same pain, but now I'm upset. Whereas if I learned to recognize, which is what I've done, and I'm not, I'm a human, not every time. Sometimes these thoughts can skip, get, get through to me. But I've got a lot better at recognizing those early thoughts and going, no, mm -mm. we're not even going to go there, Vanessa, because there's no point. It won't change anything. What do you have in your control right now? Is there anything I can do about that pain right now? Do I need to sit down? Do I need to stand up? Do I need to do extra physio? Do I need to take another painkiller? And if not, let's listen to the birds. Let's call someone. Let's play some country music. Let's go make a cup of tea. What's in your control? So... It's about learning that you are in way more control of the things that link through to our emotions. I think that was quite a long answer. <laughs> no, and I, and, and I think it's a good one. Here's, here's something I'm going to ask you. How, are there ever times in your life where you either verbalize or think to yourself, while I certainly would never want to go through this again, 
this being your wreck. I am so thankful I did because, and then you fill in the blank. Do you ever have that thought process or verbalize those words? If I could go back in time to two minutes before the accident, I wouldn't change a thing. And it, it took me, I think it was probably four or five years to get to the point where I realized that, but there are so many things in my life that I am so grateful for that wouldn't have happened or my attitude or my mindset to life wouldn't have shifted and changed if it hadn't been for the accident. Really simple things that aren't simple, they're huge, but realizing what's worth fighting over, what's worth getting upset about and crying about, arguing about, you know, realizing that actually it's not all about money, it's about experiences and friendships um, realizing gratitude, like in even the darkest of moments when you're stuck in bed, there are things that you can find to be grateful for. And whether that's like the soft sheets on your feet or a squeeze of your teddy boy or a tasty mango, there's just little things and loads of little things can just give you a bit of an uplift. And, and even things like being more aware of your own energies and other energies. I think I know there were lots of times where I could go around the supermarket and people would look at me and I look totally normal and even now you know a lot there's a lot of times where I'm in a lot of pain you cannot tell and when you speak to that checkout girl who's really grumpy at you it's so easy to just snap and be grumpy back but you have no idea what they are going through what they are battling just to be alive in that day and be at that till and I just think so much of my accident has just given me a a way better grounding or perspective on some really important things in life. And I wouldn't be a motorbike rider. I wouldn't be the girl on a bike. Uh, you know, obviously being the girl on a bike comes with the fact that I've got all that history and I live and manage my body, but I'm, yeah, I'm kind of in this weird place where it was, it's, it's not a negative. I mean, it hurts, but it's, it's part of my journey. Well, you know, and I've got this theory that when we, when life punches us in the face, and some of them are bigger punches than others, yours was a pretty big one. Yeah. We process it, and I think we have two ways to come out of it, better or bitter. And it, it, the thing that I hear from you and I read from you is two things. One, the journey sucked. In days, it still <laughs> sucks. But at the end of the day, your default is going to be one of gratitude and forward movement, not a lot of looking back and bitching and moaning. And I got to believe that, that that resonates with people because all of us have had things happen. And, you know, you carry around whatever you carry around. But to hear your story, I'm sure gives a lot of people hope. Or if nothing else, just reframes the way they're looking at their lives. Yeah, there's um there's another lesson, maybe a second answer to your, your question before that I often share is that I realized that the next step of um of the, the mind is actually being more aware of our mindset. And I I've kind of found these three different mindsets which seem to apply to everything. I haven't found anything yet where they don't apply. So okay. uh you, you kind of have three options on what mindset you're taking to life. So the first option is denial. 
and it's kind of what it says on the tin you're it's self-pity it's anger it's always someone else's fault you're always the victim you feel sorry for yourself you feel bitter you feel hard done by and those kind of emotions are obviously all a little bit toxic it, you're certainly not going to be growing striving out of situations you can exist indefinitely in a denial mindset you know having that kind of everything's everyone else's fault but you probably won't have that much fun and you probably won't be that successful on whatever successful looks like to you it's probably going to be a pretty miserable existence um and you then have the option to try to go into an endurance stage and the endurance stage is more about it's better than denial obviously it's a step on from that but it's more about trying to mm, exist in the most comfortable way in the situation like endure it so an example of lockdown say would be watching netflix you're just enduring it you know sitting in my hospital bed watching netflix listening to some music that's just making it a little bit more comfortable but it's not helping me grow it's not helping me overcome the situation come out the other side stronger anything like that and again you can exist in the endure mindset indefinitely but again you're probably not going to have the most success and you're probably not going to have the most fun and you're probably going to then end up in your situation for a hell of a lot longer than if you went to the next mindset which is overcome and this is all about taking control of the situation working out what you can control not focusing on what you can't control and finding ways to grow and have a an outlook of what can i do so i often use when i do my school talks so i go into um any school in the UK that will have me and do free workshops for the kids. And, and they're called Because I Can. And, tell, and I want to tell yeah. us about those. I think that's so cool. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely tell you about that. But And um, when I go into these kids, I often use the, the lockdown scenario because it was quite heavy in the UK. And uh, I'm, at this point, I'm like, right, nope, I haven't got a smart-ass answer on how we get out of lockdown. Because so often in life, the situation isn't in our control. And that's part of the lesson. Lockdown, you're still stuck in lockdown. But what can you do in lockdown to overcome, to grow, to become a better person than you were? For obviously for my recovery, my overcome mindset was doing my physio, which is really simple. But loads of people don't do their physio, you know, putting the right food in, getting sleep. And in lockdown, I decided to go out to the garage, take the tyre and the wheel off my motorcycle, change the tyre, put it back on, put it back on the bike and do it again tire off, tire on, back on the bike, over and over and over again, until the point I could do a tire change in four minutes, 22 seconds. Totally ridiculous. You know, I'm just killing lockdown. But actually, when you come out of lockdown and go into a race environment, being able to change a tire that quickly is really beneficial. So I was using a situation where I was stuck at home and my overcome mindset was, there must be something I can do to learn and grow. To develop myself as a person and so these are some of the things that i talk to the kids about so the because i can stuff is just i've just realized there's so much horrible negative stuff in the media you know there's horrible headlines like the kids have 
at school generations at the moment are the lost generations and they've lost half their incomes and because of COVID the world's over and it's like no it's not and even if it was why would you tell them that because so much is what we believe and if we are being told and we believe that we are lost in life because of COVID they'll believe it and that will be the outcome and so I just thought you know what it costs me nothing to go into a school I mean technically it does it costs me a lot of time and fuel and hotels and whatever but that's irrelevant it costs me nothing as far as I'm concerned to go into a school and give my time and share my story and give them some of the lessons that I've learned like on on gratitude and goal setting um, simple things like realizing actually that life is really hard and that that's normal and that social media isn't as it seems and actually it's quite funny when I, I sort of introduce myself as this you know motorcycle rider race and adventurer travel around the world doing races riding motorbikes which is all true uh, doesn't that sound really shiny and amazing and glamorous who thinks my my life's just fantastic and all these kids are like yeah wow that's so cool and then I show them a picture of me in the hospital bed and I tell them I live and manage with pain and their face is like <gasps> what and then I tell them I have lots of social media following and then you're like they, they're just eating out of your hands because you're speaking their language of the younger generations like they're all on social media and and so you kind of I've managed to find this way to get their guards down you know really pull them in the store with the story and give some some really tangible actionable things that they can go away and do and grow out of just an hour session in an assembly with me and oh man some of the messages I get from these kids on social media and the response I even get parents messaging me going I don't know what you did for an hour but my kid's transformed he's like running about with all these things he wants to be doing and he's motivated and driven and gives me a lot of energy and let's be honest would you have ever done that before that car ran into you no absolutely not See? Nope. Yeah, I have this theory sometimes that we need to be stripped down to the studs before we can really learn. Um, so you're living in the Bahamas when you first get back on a motorcycle or get on a motorcycle. What was it like? I mean, let's be honest. The first time you're on the bike and you're riding, what would, what did that feel like? So the, the, the first time I had a bike was when I lived in the Bahamas. That was before the accident when I was about 20. Okay, so, when you were, yeah, the first so, time you got it. Yeah. yeah, so at the time of the accident, I wasn't an, an active motorcycle rider. I had had one when I lived on this island uh, as a proper, just as a means of transport. Now, after the accident, it was a little while after where I was at a high point of the roller coaster. So I was a little bit more physically able, but not able to do any of my sports and certainly not able to cycle my commute 16 miles each day. I was really struggling with the traffic, the fuel costs, the parking, getting into the city to work every day. And uh, I was having a gin and tonic in an evening with my husband and a friend. And obviously the this conversation must have been really boring. So I like just drifted off into my own little world and started daydreaming. And I just came back in and I was like, I should get a motorbike. And my husband's like, um, what? Uh, and I was like, it's genius. Skip the traffic. Don't have to worry about parking. Save loads of money on fuel and it'd be really fun. Now at this point, Vanessa's brain isn't thinking about what riding a motorcycle actually means. I, I've been diagnosed with a clinical fear of the road and getting a motorcycle means um, 
But that was that was <laughs> the next battle. I immediately went online and I found a little Suzuki band at 600 in my town for a really reasonable price. It was just like fate. Went to see it the next day. Following day, I went to get some bike kit and then I had to get on the thing. And I, I cannot emphasize enough how hard it was getting on that motorcycle. Like every single part of my survival instincts, my nature preservation of my life was like, you're going to die. You shouldn't get on this thing. But I think there are a few things that really helped me overcome that. So mindfulness, which I've already talked about. Was a, was a really big one. Um, I remember sitting on the bike, freaking out about the fact that, you know, I was going to die and what am I doing on a bike? And when I actually then rationalised the situation of like, come on, what are you scared of right now? You've not even left the driveway. Like, sometimes you just got to stop and go, right, what's the actual situation I'm in right now? Yeah, you're okay. <laughs> um, the fact that it was an accident was a really important one to focus on as well. And it sounds simple, but it was an accident. That lady didn't wake up that morning and look at her watch and go, right, what time's Vanessa going to be at that junction? It was an accident. And accidents happen all over the place. Like we probably wouldn't even go to the toilet if we started to look at statistics because people have really bad accidents in the toilet. Pretty, pretty scary. So focusing on that, couldn't bubble wrap myself through life. I had had a huge life change as a result of this accident and her momentary lapse of judgment and I couldn't let that control my future as well as a kid growing up I was really lucky to ride horses and you know I think the sole purpose of ponies is pretty much to put their rider on the ground so I fell off loads and you always got back on the horse so just a combination of all of these things and just a lot of determination that I was not going to let it stop me I you know I got on that bike and I think the first time 50th time 200th time and even years on now I still have random flashbacks it scared me I had freak outs I cried in my helmet I don't know if you've ever cried in a motorcycle helmet it's incredibly awkward because you've got this big thing on your head and you've got gloves and a visor and you're like trying to wipe your eyes it doesn't really work and then you've got water in your visor and then it starts steaming up and then you're crying and you can't see and it's all a bit of a disaster and I joke about it but I really did have quite a lot of freak outs um a lot but I just kept going and I knew that with time with slowly progressing my pushing myself a little bit more out of my comfort zone I'd normalize and it would become easier and easier I had to relearn to trust the highway code really because it failed on me mm. and think about all the people that have been hurt by life they probably have to relearn to trust people yeah which can really be and you know this lady who had the accident with you, like you said, probably didn't mean it, didn't intend to hurt you. But unfortunately, we all know people that have been hurt by other people who damn well intended it. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, like you said, you can stay and endure. You can be bitter and pissed off. And you talked about not being very successful. But when you're in that bitter and pissed off stage, you also find yourself alone. Because frankly, who wants to be around somebody that sucks all the negative, all the positive energy out of the room? No, it's true. I think you, the um, the energy levels that we put out, you tend to get back. You know, it's that checkout lady at the supermarket example. If you're grumpy to someone, they tend to be grumpy back. If you smile and happy to someone, 
they'll tend to be smiling and happy back. And it's so true. The energy you put out will be what you get back. I agree. So what is what does the world have in store? Or what is maybe the better question, what do you have in store for the world over the next <laughs> couple of years for Girl on a Bike? Oh, dear. Probably lots of emotion and huge challenges. And I just want to keep growing as a person, get better at riding, do, do some more racing, try and encourage more people to get up and try and do anything. It doesn't have to be learning to ride a motorbike. It can be just anything, but just make the most of the day. Those things that you always said you wish you could do or start doing or wanted to learn or go, just get it booked and do it. And I I just want to keep trying to encourage people to just do stuff, uh, not just talk about it or wish about it, um, set some goals and make it happen. So I'm definitely going to be doing some racing, um, I'm definitely going to be riding motorbikes. I'm definitely going to do a lot more school visits. Um, I'd love to try and do school visits anywhere, really. It doesn't have to be UK, but I just get so much energy out of those. I think that's probably my favorite thing to do. My voice disagrees by the end of the day. Some days I'll do seven sessions. Really? Um, which is seven hours. <laughs> and my voice by the end of it, I'm like toasted. Because it's also really emotional. It's heavy heavy stuff to be talking about. Oh, of yeah. course, just telling your story. Sure. What do you, when people come up to you and they share with you their thoughts, what do you think holds people back from doing the things that they've always wanted to do? Fear of failing, but it's uh -huh. okay to fail. Yeah. It's okay to fail. It's better to fail and have tried because you'll still have learned something. But if you never try, you'll never learn it. Yeah. To live that life of quiet desperation when you're... Mm -hmm. I think comfort zones. Comfort zones is the other thing. Because I think it's... I, my my theory is, whether there's any theory behind my theory, well, who knows, but I, I like my theory, is that the only way you can grow is outside your comfort zone. Oh. And so you just got to do it. Jump in and don't be scared of saying... Yeah, I mean, physiologically... We yeah, physiologically, we know that could be true. Sure. And we've got to get out. And I think if you do something every day that you've never done before, that 1% rule really does, does mm -hmm. tend to apply. So if folks are intrigued by your story. They want to get in touch with you. They're like, this this lady sounds amazing. How? What's the best way for people to reach you? So they can find me as the girl on a bike or Vanessa Ruck. You both will work on any of the social media platforms, really. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn. That, that whole list exhausted me, so I don't that, know. That was quite a list anyway. You'll find me on social media. Even if you just Google me, you'd find me. And, yeah, my inbox is always open. Um, so drop me a message on Instagram or Facebook. Probably the easiest one for Messenger. So as someone with an adventurous spirit who's seen a lot of this world with and without a windshield, this is what I want to leave with. What gives you hope, Vanessa? What gives me hope? That's a really big question. Oh, I don't know if I can answer that on the spot. Everything, anything, just being alive, sharing life with my husband, little fluffy dog, I don't know, just that I'm alive. Yeah, something that all of us can be thankful for. Vanessa Rook. Thank you for joining us for the late night edition, at least in the UK, of Legal Ground. 
Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> this is Mike Bassett with Legal Grounds. Be easy, everybody. Legal Grounds was written, recorded, and produced by Dust Devil Press. To learn more about today's guest and for links to the topics and materials discussed, please check out our show notes. For more information on Mike Bassett, visit thebassettfirm.com. Questions, topic ideas, and guest suggestions can be emailed to legalgrounds at thebassettfirm.com. 